Waffellosigkeit angeboten, solange es denn gelingt. Nachdem man das ablehnte, hab ich allein dann keinen heiligen Schluss mehr gemacht. Hier bin ich der Philosophist und alter deutscher Freisoldat, wenn Sie... Welcome to Killing Time, a military history podcast about battles and conflicts that bent the arc of history. I'm your host, Chip Wagon. The battle we are going to cover in this next podcast is the most colossal military engagement in the history of the world to this day. But before we do that, let me remind you about our website, www.killingtimepodcast.com. Come visit the website, check out the various military campaigns and battles that we'll be covering in this podcast. Comment on what you like and what you don't like and join our group uh, and receive notifications about future podcasts as they come out. Check it out. And now, let's talk about the Battle of Moscow. It began on October 7th, 1941 and raged for a little over three months until January 7th, 1942. It was fought on a front of 760 kilometers, or about 475 miles, from one side to the other, which is greater than the distance between Boston and Washington, D.C., from one end to the other. About 3.5 million soldiers were involved, more soldiers than the entire population of the city of Los Angeles. 3,400 tanks, 21,000 artillery pieces, 1,500 aircraft, and over 100,000 other wheeled and tracked vehicles give you an idea of the immensity and scale of this military operation, but even these numbers don't begin to tell the story. The Battle of Moscow ranks as the fifth most lethal campaign in the history of the world, with approximately one million deaths, only slightly behind the 1.2 million deaths in the Battle of the Somme in 1916. The most lethal campaign ever, by the way, was Operation Barbarossa, the campaign that preceded the Battle of Moscow between July 22nd and September 23rd, in which some 1.4 million soldiers died. These statistics do not include, though, the deaths of prisoners of war on either side, and it's notable in this particularly savage war that most prisoners taken by either side died in transport to prison camps, or were enslaved and died, or simply died of malnutrition, cold, or disease while imprisoned. 
To put this in some context, according to the Center for Disease Control, statistics show that in the past decade, approximately two and a half million people die every year in the United States from all causes. Now, the United States is a country of over 300 million people. Thus, in a period of about three months in 1941, the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany killed approximately 40% of the annual total deaths that we have in the United States now, more than half a century later. In a country with a population far larger than 1941 USSR and Germany combined. Or put another way, if you annualized the rate of killing of just military personnel alone that were involved in the Moscow campaign, it would equal 4 million people, more deaths than happen in the United States in a year and a half from all causes. The combined deaths of Operation Barbarossa and Operation Typhoon as the campaign that led up to the Battle of Moscow uh, was called, the combined deaths of these two operations exceeded the total annual death rate of the United States today in only half the time. A death rate about equivalent to losing the population of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, or Tucson, Arizona, or Sacramento, California, every month. And these figures don't include other military casualties uh, in the campaign. As a military term, casualties include not only soldiers killed, but those maimed, crippled, or wounded so seriously that they're either temporarily or permanently no longer physically capable of taking part in combat operations. Russian casualties alone during Operation Typhoon amounted to some 1.2 million soldiers. German casualties were about 400,000. Nor do these numbers include Russian civilian casualties within the theater of operations who died as collateral damage directly from military operations, exposure, starvation, or mass murder as suspected or actual partisans behind German military lines. It is estimated that something in the range of tens of thousands of Russian non-military personnel also perished during this period. At stake in the Battle of Moscow was nothing less than the extinction of the Soviet regime by military annihilation and a personal life-and-death struggle between the two most notorious dictators of the 20th century, and perhaps of all time, Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin. While the Battle of Stalingrad, which would take place about a year later, is more famous for its marking the beginning of a virtual freefall to destruction of the German army, the Battle of Moscow is undoubtedly the more significant of the two. Moscow decided the question of whether the Soviet Union would survive or not. Stalingrad signaled the eventual certain doom of the Nazi regime 
primarily at the hands of a vengeful and victorious Red Army. In size, scale, and the stakes, some historians regard the campaign that culminated in the Battle of Moscow in 1941 to be the greatest battle of all times. Now, before we get into the story of this titanic struggle, let's talk about the context in which it was fought. The campaign began about two and a half months after the initial invasion of the Soviet Union by Germany on July 22, 1941. At that time, Germany was in control of virtually all of continental Europe, except the USSR and the United Kingdom. After the outbreak of the war on September 1, 1939, the German army had quickly and with minimal bloodshed, overrun Poland, Denmark, Norway, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, Belgium, and France. Nazi governors or puppets imposed a military rule of occupation on these defeated countries, which also included Austria and the Czech Republic, which Nazi Germany had occupied and ruled even before the outbreak of the war. In addition to the outright conquest and direct rule that Germany had imposed on these countries, it had numerous allies that it had acquired in the years leading up to the war. Some were countries who, like Germany, had lost the First World War and were eager to overthrow the punitive, harsh terms imposed on them after the Paris Peace Conference of 1919, such as Hungary and Croatia. Others included countries such as Spain, Romania, Bulgaria, and Vichy France, with fascist dictators who admired Hitler and, in any event, had concluded that Nazi Germany would win this war. Foremost among Germany's allies was Italy, disappointed by the meager acquisitions it had made after the Great War, and now ruled by Benito Mussolini. This aggressive dictator, whose odious regime depended upon arousing dreams of imperial grandeur among the Italian people, had increasingly come to depend upon the military and economic might of Germany to stave off defeat in Africa by the British and in the Balkans by the Greeks. Between June 1940, after the defeat of France, and July 1941, the only military opponent facing Nazi Germany was Great Britain, including the worldwide British Empire and Commonwealth. While Britain was a formidable foe with military potential comparable to Germany, its military forces had suffered a stunning and terrific defeat during the campaign in France and was forced to evacuate the continent at Dunkirk and to leave behind virtually its entire armaments of tanks, trucks, artillery, and war material. Its expeditionary force of soldiers clambered aboard ships and yachts with little more than the clothes on their backs, leaving everything else behind in their retreat to their island homeland. It would take more than a year simply to replace their losses and refit an army capable of any significant military action anywhere in the world. Yet its forces were stretched thin during this time. 
Its military forces in Egypt were being hard-pressed by the Italian and then German forces there. Further manpower and resources had to be diverted to occupy and guard its empire in India and the Far East, which was menaced by Japan. Germany rightfully considered the threat of a British amphibious landing on the coast of France in 1940 and 1941 as a negligible risk, and rightly so. Aside from small hit-and-run raids, the British were far more concerned with a possible German landing on their coast, and at the time of the invasion of the Soviet Union were still making preparations to repel that if and when it came. Thus, in the latter half of 1940 and the first half of 1941, Germany had virtually no opponent that even remotely posed an existential threat on the continent of Europe, other than the Soviet Union, with whom it had signed a non-aggression pact in August 1939, immediately prior to the outbreak of the war. In fact, despite the mutual antipathy and suspicions of the two dictators, Russia and Germany had a de facto cooperative relationship between September 1939 and July 22, 1941. By agreement, they shared the partition of Poland after its defeat. Russia supplied Germany with raw materials vital to German industry and war production after Germany was cut off from most maritime commerce by the British and French navies immediately after the outbreak of the war in the, in the West. Furthermore, the archives of the Soviet Union show that Russia had no aggressive plans regarding Germany. In the first place, Stalin and the Soviet government had great respect for German military capability, especially after the improbable and amazing six-week campaign against France and Britain. By contrast, the Red Army had undergone a major purge of its high command in the late 1930s, with many suspected but experienced generals and officers arrested, exiled to Siberia, or executed right before the outbreak of the war. The incompetence, poor equipment, and questionable logistics of the Soviet military were exposed in the Winter War with Finland in 1939 and 1940, where a small but well-motivated and well-commanded Finnish army had routed the Soviets, a campaign that did not go unnoticed by German officers observing the fighting there. Stalin did harbor aggressive intentions, however, against most of Russia's other Western neighbors. In the period before the Nazi invasion, Stalin had eventually overwhelmed the Finns and annexed their territory in the vicinity of Leningrad that had been lost to Finland at the conclusion of the First World War. In fact, Stalin's view of the map of Europe was not very different than that of the Tsars before him. The Soviet Union could also be counted among the European powers dissatisfied with the outcome of the settlements that followed the Great War, having lost significant territory on its western frontiers that Stalin was anxious to recover to enhance his own prestige and that of the Soviet Union as a great power. Much of eastern Poland was annexed to the USSR, as I've already mentioned. The Baltic countries of Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania that had achieved their independence with the collapse of the old Russian Empire in 1918 
were now invaded, while the only countries who could have done anything about it, Germany, France, or Britain, were engaged in a war among themselves. The Baltic countries succumbed without any real resistance, and communist apparatchiks appointed by Stalin from Moscow became their new rulers. Romania was next, having to cede about a quarter of its territory in Bessarabia, which had also been part of Tsarist Russia until 1918. Ominously, this brought Russia within easy striking distance of the only source of oil to the mechanized army of Germany, the Ploesti oil fields of Romania. These Soviet acquisitions during the period when Germany was preoccupied with its war in the West were not made with Germany's permission or, in many cases, with any advance notice to Berlin, which engendered resentment and suspicion there. Soviet advances toward its pre-World War I borders, it was suspected, was merely the prelude to further penetration into Europe, particularly in the Balkans, where Germany was determined to be the dominant power that she and Austria had been before their defeat in 1918. These strategic concerns were multiplied in the minds of the very top leaders of the Third Reich by the extreme racial convictions that were the core of Nazi ideology, including the notion that of German racial superiority in the East over inferior subhuman Slavs. Antipathy in the German business classes toward communism and the desire to wipe it out of existence was another stimulus to eventual war with the Soviet state. But above all of the origins for the war that would break out between Germany and the Soviet Union was the mind of the German dictator himself. We do not have the time to delve too deeply into the fantasies of Eastern conquests at the expense of Russia that Adolf Hitler dreamed and nourished as far back as his imprisonment in the early 1920s when he wrote his autobiography, Mein Kampf. In a nutshell, however, Hitler dreamed of restoring a rough equivalent of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk that Germany and Austria-Hungary had signed with a weak and defeated Bolshevik Russia in 1918 that had taken Russia out of the Great War. Both central powers had acquired territory at the expense of Russia and had also set up border puppet states such as Ukraine and the Baltic states and submissive regimes in the Balkans that, had the terms of that agreement survived 1918, would have unquestionably made Germany the greatest of all European powers. This reordering of Central and Eastern Europe, Hitler had already partly succeeded in achieving by the summer of 1941. Indeed, as matters stood, Germany was in a far more powerful position to dominate the European continent than ever before. All of the small successor states of the old Austro-Hungarian Empire that had been Germany's best ally in the last war were now once again within the German fold, and then some. Romania, which had been an enemy in the last war, would actually commit enormous resources with Germany to the invasion of the Soviet Union and remain a staunch ally under the brutal rule of its dictator, Antonescu, until 1944, when it was overrun by the Red Army. 
Yugoslavia had been crushed by a military invasion earlier in 1941 and was completely occupied. Italy, who had been an enemy in the last war, was firmly in the German camp this time. Bulgaria, who had been an ally in the last war, was again in the Axis alliance, and Greece, which had been the entry portal to British forces into the Balkans in the last war, was completely occupied by Germany and Italy before the invasion of Russia. There would be no Balkan front in this war, as there had been in the last. The greatest distinction and benefit to Germany, as compared to her position in the First World War, however, was the fact that Germany faced no other great power opponent on its western front as it had throughout the First World War. In that war, Germany had been forced to divide its forces to fight in the west against Britain, France, and Belgium, while simultaneously fighting the Russians in the east. This time, Russia had remained neutral, while Germany did in six weeks what it had failed to do in the four years under the Kaiser. Now with the Western Front quiet, to paraphrase the famous interwar novel, Hitler could do something Imperial Germany could never have done, concentrate nearly its entire military force against Russia. It's no wonder that Hitler and most of the German high command considered their prospects for a complete annihilation of Russia to be very good. Germany had defeated Russia with much less than it now had some 25 years earlier. Why wouldn't it be able to do it again, and even more decisively this time, to bring about a new European and indeed world order? In truth, and this is very important for the account of the Battle of Moscow that we're about to begin, these facts were deceiving. A much deeper, careful, and more objective consideration of the realities of the Soviet Union and the requirements of a war in European Russia should have persuaded a rational leader that the outcome of an invasion in 1941 would probably be unsuccessful and might even result in the same kind of disaster that befell the great Napoleon in 1812. The surprising ignorance of a number of contraindications for war by the German dictator and his generals, provided the basis for a number of later myths about this war that survived long after the end of World War II, some for decades. One of the best examinations of the objective causes of German failure in this war is Operation Typhoon, Hitler's March on Moscow, by David Stahl, whose book I will quote frequently throughout this podcast. Let's talk a little more about the objective facts about the USSR's capacity to resist and eventually beat back a truly overwhelming surprise invasion. One of the first misconceptions about the Soviet Union in the summer of 1941 was that it was a weaker power compared to Germany, that the USSR was initially outnumbered and overwhelmed in the early months of the war, by vastly superior invaders. And that without help from the United States and Britain, who shipped vast amounts of war material and weapons to Russia, Germany would have easily defeated the USSR and basically won World War II. This is completely false in every major respect. In July 1941, the Soviet Union was more powerful than Germany 
in almost every category. Estimates vary, and exact figures do not exist. But the only category in which the Axis armies were superior in front-line strength, and it's important to remember that these soldiers were not only relatively high-quality German soldiers, but also those of its allies of a more dubious value. But on front-line strength, the Axis powers began the invasion with about 3.8 million troops, compared to about 2.8 million Soviets. But far from the front lines, Soviet reserves would swell their army to over 5 million, who could and would come into play in any invasion scenario. In tanks, the Soviets had an overwhelming advantage in overall strength, with between 15 and 20,000 tanks, including the soon-to-be-legendary T-34 monsters, to Germany's 4,300 tanks, an almost 4-to-1 advantage. In aircraft, the USSR had more than a 2-to-1 advantage, some 4,389 aircraft for Germany to about 11,357 for Russia. British aircraft tanks, and military supplies did not even begin to trickle into Russia until months after the initial invasion in October and November 1941. The quality of both were inferior to Russian-made, and their quantity made no significant impact in the fighting for Moscow. American Lend-Lease supplies were even less significant during this time period, although this would change as the war went on, especially with regard to trucks and other wheeled vehicles. Russia was not rescued by its Western allies. In this war, at this time, it was very much on its own. But it was not outnumbered, under-equipped, or even as surprised as some historians concluded and many people came to believe. While the timing and the scale of the invasion surprised Stalin and his generals. They were under no illusions that it was coming. The Soviet spymaster in Tokyo, Richard Sorg, had learned through his contacts at the German embassy of the plans for Operation Barbarossa and passed the information on to Moscow, including almost the exact date when the invasion would begin. This same spy... Richard Sorg would serve an even greater service to his master a few months later when he would confirm that Japan was not going to attack the USSR in the Far East, which enabled Stalin to release an entire Siberian army from that theater and bring it into play in the defense of Moscow. But we'll talk more about that a little later. In Gabriel Gordoretsky's book, published in 1999, it was revealed for the first time that raw Soviet intelligence in the months leading up to the invasion was extensive and revealed much of the German buildup in the East to the Soviet government. Winston Churchill himself warned Stalin of the upcoming invasion. But again, Stalin was already sure that the invasion was coming anyway and distrusted Churchill at that time 
And finally, Stalin himself warned Soviet cadets graduating from military school in May of 1941, only three months before the invasion, of the, quote, inevitability of a Nazi invasion and their duty to resist it. Even more significantly, the Soviet buildup of its military capability and resources between September 1939 and July 1941 were prodigious. In almost every category except tanks, which were already well-stocked, Soviet numbers and capacity more than doubled. So what was the reason for the stunning operational successes attained by the Wehrmacht in Barbarossa and again in the initial phase of Operation Typhoon, the Battle of Moscow? The answer lies not in surprise or numbers, but the incompetence of the high command of the Red Army in these initial phases. As was the case in France in 1940, the superiority of German generalship overcame a deficit in resources that should have guaranteed at best a stalemate and at worst a defeat for Germany. The difference in Russia was that its vast and often bleak territory that provided little sustenance to an invader in terms of food, shelter, or transportation, virtually negated from the outset the possibility of a quick lightning campaign resulting in the defeat and surrender of the USSR, as had happened with France. Yet that is exactly what Adolf Hitler commanded his army to devise when planning for Barbarossa began in earnest after the fall of France in 1940. Before we begin describing the actual campaign that culminated in the Battle of Moscow, Operation Typhoon, I need to explain another one of those military concepts that are so vital to fully understanding our story. In this case, the distinctions between tactical, operational, and strategic objectives and results. I have already told you what Germany's strategic objective was a quick campaign that annihilated the Red Army and compelled the surrender of the Soviet Union, as had occurred in France the year before. Strategic goals and objectives are ultimate in nature. Germany failed to achieve its strategic goal in 1941. Operations is the middle ground that involves the coordination of military tactics to achieve the overarching strategic goals. To achieve the surrender of the Soviet Union, the overarching strategic goal in this case, required the defeat, if not the destruction, of the Red Army. And that's the operational aspect. Tactics that were used to achieve the operational objectives included, among other things, the concentration and use of quick, striking, mobile units of tanks, or panzers as they were known in the German army, or motorized infantry, that is to say infantry loaded into trucks, rail cars, um, jeeps, or any other wheeled or tracked vehicle to assist and expedite their movement. These tactics included the use of tanks or motorized infantry to surprise and overwhelm Soviet lines of defense and drive deep, penetrating thrusts into the Russian interior, 
leading to encirclement and destruction of large units of the Soviet army. Germany had a succession of operational successes, some of staggering proportions using these tactics, but failed to achieve their strategic gains nonetheless. Operation Typhoon was the operational plan for the utter destruction of the central front in Russia's defenses before their capital of Moscow. The campaign was largely devised under the direction of the commander of Germany's Army Group Center, Field Marshal Fedor von Bock, sometime after September 9th, and was approved shortly thereafter by the German High Command, including the Supreme Commander, Field Marshal Walter von Brauschitsch, and Chief of Operations, General Franz Halder. The campaign, therefore, followed the more famous initial campaign, Operation Barbarossa, which had failed to destroy the Russian army in the opening months of the war, as Hitler had hoped. The general idea of Bach's plan was to push forward on a wide front, but to use four major groupings of panzer divisions to force breakthroughs in two sectors of the front, which became known as the Vyazma and Bryansk pockets. The motorized panzer divisions would achieve deep penetration and then curl inward, eventually joining together behind huge chunks of the Russian army forming a circle. This encirclement, a classic military technique since the time of Hannibal at Cannae, would trap the Russians within, which would then be methodically and mercilessly killed or taken prisoner as the circle was compressed tighter and tighter to completion. This tactic had worked with spectacular success already in Barbarossa, particularly around the cities of Kiev and Smolensk, with hundreds of thousands of Russians taken prisoner and similar numbers killed. After completing the encirclement of much of the Russian Central Front forces, it was assumed by Bach and the German High Command that the road to Moscow would be wide open and the city ripe for the taking. Panzer units would be released as quickly as possible once the encirclements were complete, so they could immediately race for Moscow on the limited road network available before the arrival of winter. The slower infantry would complete the elimination of the trapped Russians in the pockets. In the meantime, air cover would be provided by the Luftwaffe, supporting uh, the infantry and tanks from improvised airstrips behind German lines. The first weeks of the campaign saw Bach's operational plan work to virtual perfection. Breakthroughs occurred almost immediately as Russian lines were breached and overwhelmed by hundreds of tanks, followed by trucks loaded with soldiers who exploited the breaks, meeting little resistance. Soviet reserve divisions were ordered forward to patch the holes and reinforce the pie-crust lines that were retreating in the face of sustained German pressure. This was the greatest mistake made by the Soviet command, sending hundreds of thousands of additional Soviet soldiers into a slowly closing trap. It was compounded by orders to these same soldiers to hold their ground at all costs as the only escape routes 
to the east and south of these pockets were closed off and then reinforced, especially around Vyazma, by even greater numbers of infantry, artillery, and tanks. Trapped in the two huge pockets at Vyazma and Bryansk were some 700,000 Russian soldiers, together with tanks, trucks, artillery, fuel supplies, food, and all the other war material that Russia had been able to muster to defend their homeland. Now German tanks, guns, and machine guns began pounding these trapped soldiers in the pocket with the express object of making the areas they occupied a living hell. As the Russians retreated away from the heaviest fire and killing, the pocket contracted, packing the Russians into even tighter and denser targets for the German artillery and aircraft. Counterattacks by the Soviets began but were usually repulsed with horrific loss of life as human wave attacks were met by machine guns and artillery. The ever-tightening noose produced increasing panic and desperation inside. Tens of thousands of soldiers laid down their arms and surrendered and were marched to the rear where they were brutally incarcerated and starved in miserable conditions with no shelter. Eventually, over 90% of these prisoners died in captivity. One of the hallmarks of this conflict between Nazi Germany and the USSR was the sheer savagery of the desperate fighting that took place under the most dire conditions imaginable in any human conflict. The terrain was bleak and unforgiving. The weather in mid-October 1941 became increasingly cold with heavy rains that often lasted for days. But these conditions merely set the stage for the brutality that raged between the soldiers trying to survive, but also motivated by hate and contempt for the opposing side. To this was added the fanatical will of the opposing dictators. Stalin is reported to have said, It takes more courage for our soldiers to retreat than to advance. The Soviets often stationed NKVD, secret police forces behind their own lines with orders to shoot and kill any retreating red soldiers and they knew it. In Michael Jones' book The Retreat he relates an account written by a Soviet soldier trapped inside one of the closing pockets. Our army is in a tragic situation. We no longer have any idea where the rear is or where the front line is to be found. It is impossible to tell any more. And we have suffered such terrible losses. We are trying to salvage what we can, and our remaining vehicles are jam-packed with equipment. Every soldier is carrying something, even strips of plywood. But all the time the ring closes around us. 
Things were hardly better for the German soldiers manning the perimeter of these pockets in the face of desperate counterattacks by Russian soldiers trying to break out of the pocket and retreat to the east. Robert Kershaw, in his book War Without Garlands, quotes a German soldier about what it was like on their side. Like a storm flood, the enemy flow begins to trickle over the embankments into the ditches. Then small breaches were torn aside until finally the unstoppable wave flooded into the hinterland. German infantrymen and in places even anti-tank teams with guns were trampled into the ground by the mass of humanity driven by the certainty of death to seek an escape to the east. The Nazi regime had its own means of compulsion. Nazi ideology held to the fantasy that sheer willpower could overcome virtually any adversity, including the abysmal conditions on the Central Front, lack of supplies, immobilization of their motorized blitzkrieg tactics, and the despair that overtook the soldiers in the muck who actually had to do the fighting. Far behind the front lines, at Hitler's headquarters in the Wolf's Lair, where he was to be nearly assassinated less than three years later, orders were given to Bach and from him down to the subordinate generals to attack and attack again, with little heed or understanding of the immense difficulties the troops on the ground and their officers were facing. And there was nowhere to go for the Germans. The rain, cold, impassable roads forward were in the same condition to the rear. Hundreds and hundreds of miles of impoverished, desolated countryside lay behind them, populated with partisan units willing to massacre any small groups of stragglers or deserters they could find. Napoleon lost far more of his army in retreat than in the taking of Moscow in 1812. The same fate loomed before the Germans, stranded in limbo between Smolensk and Moscow in 1941. Casualties were far more heavy on the Soviet side, but the Germans were forced to pay dearly every day as the fighting raged. A nurse by the name of Ingeborg Oschenknecht, in her book, describing her experience on the Eastern Front, put it like this. There were so many casualties there that we had to put the wounded in improvised beds in the aisles. In the Battle of Vyazma, our panzers had achieved the incredible, but at what price? I toiled in those days like a machine, as did everyone. The work was endless. Nevertheless, so many wounded died that we could have saved if only they had been brought to us sooner. They had to wait for help for far too long in the mud. The wounds festered or gangrene had spread through the body so that the surgeon could only amputate. It was terrible, so terrible that I have no words to describe these scenes. By October 13th, the vice around Vyazma and Bryansk had squeezed out some 650,000 Soviet prisoners of war, a fantastic total equivalent to the population of modern-day Seattle, Washington. The treatment of Soviet prisoners of war was observed by an Italian medical officer, and was quoted in Roy Mark Allen's book, White Coats Under Fire. There they were, an endless brownish column of defeated, 
defenseless and humiliated soldiers, pushed along and beaten by a handful of Germans. They tried to press against one another for warmth against the cold. Red marks on their bodies testified to the blows inflicted on them by their guards. Some of the Soviet POWs were very young, some middle-aged. All of them ran to avoid the sticks of the German guards, which fell without discrimination. At times there were gaps in the ranks, but these were soon filled by prisoners pushing from behind. The procession passed for a good ten minutes, and still there was no sign of the end. There must have been thousands of men. A few faces expressed hate. Most expressed nothing but fear, vile, degrading fear. Many of the prisoners were limping. Some advanced by hopping awkwardly, like big birds. Many were keeping up with the group only because they were helped along by their comrades. The worst beating was taken by those who threatened to delay the march of the column. At last we saw the rear of the column. Here the wounded, the sick, the weak, and the exhausted were struggling on, supported and sometimes carried by their comrades, kicked and beaten by the guards, dragging their feet on the asphalt road, staggering under the blows, their eyes wild with the fear of death. Nonetheless, by mid-October, the cold, drenching rains had reduced the primitive Soviet network of roads to complete quagmires that paralyzed German tanks, trucks, and cars. Not only was forward progress toward Moscow slowed to an exhausting crawl, but food, fuel, and supplies from the German railheads, hundreds of miles behind Army Group Center, could not move either causing some panzer units to have to halt their progress for lack of fuel. And each step that the German soldiers, tanks, trucks, officers, made forward in their progress drew them further and further away from these very same railheads and supplies, stretching the supply lines ever longer in increasingly difficult conditions. In his diary on October 13th, Joseph Goebbels wrote, quote, The roads have become bottomless as a result of the bad weather. It is almost Im- completely impossible for the motorized troops to advance. Only the advance of the marching troops is possible. This is to say that our offensive operations are not proceeding with the annihilating thrusts that we had actually promised after the first victories. The Russian word for these rains and the unbelievable sticky mud they produced is Rasputitsa. The quick, hard, deep penetrating strikes for which the German army was so justly famous and had brought total victory against France and Poland became increasingly difficult and then impossible in Russia. Without these motorized thrusts and encirclements, the German army increasingly was forced to rely on direct frontal assaults against increasingly prepared defenses by the Red Army, whose command had been taken over by Grigory Zukov, who Stalin had summoned from Leningrad on October the 8th to defend Moscow against the Nazi onslaught. The Rasputitsa's impact 
on the German style of warfare cannot be overstated. The immense Russian landscape made it all but impossible for off-road advances, even by infantry, except with the most painstaking and exhaustive effort. What this meant in practical terms was that the German thrusts toward the east and Moscow, now only about 150 miles away, were channeled along what few roads did exist. This allowed the Soviets to concentrate their defenses in strategic positions straddling these main roads, with minimal fear of being flanked or encircled, as had been the case earlier in the war, when the roads were hard and dry. While there were often wide gaps in the Soviet front that was being hastily prepared between Army Group Center and Moscow, the condition of the terrain prohibited their being exploited. The Soviets, for their part, were confronted with nearly incomprehensible problems of their own. The staggering casualties and losses of nearly one million soldiers in the Barbarossa campaign had been largely repeated with the loss of nearly three-quarters of a million more to death and capture, leaving an enormous gaping expanse before Moscow that was practically undefended. Indeed, Zhukov was forced to improvise with militias, raw recruits, and even police to man paper-thin entrenchments that appeared more formidable on paper than they actually were. Stalin ordered the government moved from Moscow a thousand miles to the east in preparation for what was anticipated as the final assault on the capital, although, famously, he stayed behind within the walls of the Kremlin directing all possible reinforcements to the beleaguered front before Moscow. In truth, the vast reserves of the Soviet Union confounded the German high command, who had completely miscalculated the potential strength of their adversary all along. While German losses in manpower and equipment were a fraction of the Soviets, although still heavy, there was little to replace the German losses while the Russians were able to muster a seemingly never-ending supply of aircraft, tanks, and men to replace even the unimaginable losses they had already sustained. After the twin disasters of Vyazma and Bryansk, Hitler and his generals were sure that the Russians were about to collapse, and that one final push would end the war in a matter of weeks. But the final push could simply not be mounted and the Russians were not on the verge of collapse, as they thought. Soviet archives have made it clear that even had Moscow been taken, presumably at enormous cost in blood, the Soviet government would have continued the war to the end. Soviet production of tanks, aircraft, artillery, and ammunition was actually increasing by leaps and bounds during this period. And while German supply lines were becoming longer and tenuous, Moscow was now practically at the front itself, and Soviet reinforcements in both manpower and material were only a short distance away. A scorched-earth retreat, leaving little or no shelter to the Germans, and an increasingly desperate supply situation, sapped the energy from the panzers and reduced the German soldiers to desperate and often brutal measures. Another German soldier, Gunther Hessing, in his book, described the situation like this. 
These infantrymen all with the same facial expression under their faded field caps, stamp silently through the mud, step by step to the east. The loamy liquid runs into the top of their boots. What does it matter? Their feet have been sopping wet for days anyway. Wet, too, are the trousers, which lie around their knees like cold compresses each night. The coats are also wet, smeared with clay. The only things dry and warm are the glimmering cigarette butts hanging from the corner of their mouths and their hearts pounding in their breasts. In Christine Alexander's book, Eastern Inferno, immortalizing the journals of a German soldier, Hans Roth, conditions were described in mid-October like this. The weather is changing An icy northern wind whips over the vast plains. Slowly but surely the cold is seeping through the thin cloth of our shabby coats. Our hands are numb and stiff. Olchana lies in shambles. There is not a single room to be found far and wide that could offer us some warmth. And slowly a premonition comes over me. It is gradually becoming clear, even to the most incorrigible optimist, that the hardest part is still before us. The second merciless enemy is advancing, the Russian winter. These hideous conditions forced the German soldiers to improvise in terribly brutal ways on the native Russians living in the theater of operations. Another German soldier, Henry Metelmann, wrote uh, later, after the war, his book, through hell for Hitler. He described how German soldiers treated the locals. Quote, Our orders were to occupy one cottage per crew and to throw the peasants out. When we entered ours, a woman and her three young children were sitting around the table by the window, obviously having just finished a meal. She was clearly frightened of us, and I could see that her hands were shaking while the kids stayed in their seats and looked at us with large, non-understanding eyes. Our sergeant came straight to the point, Rouse! and pointed to the door. When the mother started to remonstrate and her children to cry, he repeated, Rouse! and opened the door and waved his hand toward the outside in a manner which could not be mistaken anywhere. Outside it was bitterly cold. I watched them through the small window, standing by their bundles in the snow, looking helplessly in all directions, not knowing what to do. When I looked back a little later, they were gone. I did not want to think about it any more. In Landon and Leitner's book, Diary of a German Soldier, another diary of a soldier by the name of Wilhelm Prüller related the heartlessness that marked the expulsion process as these villages were taken over by desperate German soldiers. Quote, you should see the act the civilians put on when we make it clear to them that we intend to use their styes to sleep in. A weeping and yelling begins, as if their throats were being cut, until we chuck them out. Whether young or old, man or wife, they stand in their rags and tatters on the doorstep, and can't be persuaded to go. 
when we finally threaten them at pistol point, they disappear. The Soviet Union is reputed to have lost some 22 million people in World War II, and many of them were civilians. Many of them met their end in the manner described in these books and diaries of soldiers. Many of them didn't live to write their own diaries. Dying in the cold and dark while the war raged all around them. Despite repeated directives from Hitler, von Braustich, and Halder to Bach, and the generals of Army Group Center, by the middle of October, the German offensive came to a grinding halt to rest and refit before what was anticipated as the final push to take Moscow and, as they believed, end the war. It was not to be. The delays caused by the doomed but still stubborn defense of the Vyazma and Bryansk pockets and the Russian Rasputitsa had enabled Zhukov and the Red Army to prepare a defensive position anchored in the city of Mozaisk on the main road to Moscow, about halfway between Vyazma and the capital, about 112 kilometers or 70 miles from the walls of the Kremlin. Let's talk a little bit about geography at this point, because I think it's very important um, in any military history to have a really good idea of the geography. As we mentioned in our last broadcast, you really need a series of maps to truly understand uh, the military situation as each day goes on. But I know most of you listening to this won't have a map, so I'm going to try to describe it to you as best I can so that you can get an idea of the geography and the true situation that both armies faced. Today, Moscow has essentially three large concentric ring roads or beltways surrounding the city, the outermost one being the E-105. The road straddled by Mozaisk is today the main Russian interstate or motorway between the capital and Smolensk, the M1, which becomes the Kutuzovsky Prospect within the city, and then Vozdvenska Street. If you imagine Moscow as a giant clock face, the M1 approaches at about the 8 o'clock position into the city. At its intersection with Makhovaya Street, you find yourself quite literally at the outer walls and gates of the Kremlin itself, staring at the red brick steeple of the Troitskaya Tower. Certainly, the area around Moscow and the city itself looked and was somewhat different in 1941 than it is today. In 1941, the population of the city was between 3.5 and 4 million people. Today, the population of Moscow and the surrounding metropolitan area is about 15.5 million, making Moscow the 16th largest city in the world, ahead of Los Angeles, California, and behind Mumbai, India. Nonetheless, now, as then, as you depart the city on the M1, heavily built-up industrial, commercial, and residential areas sprawling outward, start to give way to gaps of flat, open countryside between smaller, nearby cities, towns, and then villages, as you proceed in a mainly west-southwest direction. 
The topography of the land becomes very flat and open, with clumps of forest at times bisected by the M1. Towns and villages become more sporadic, and the scenery looks similar to Oklahoma, with wide open, flat farmlands and fields on either side of the road. An aerial map will confirm what you would suspect, that beyond the cities and towns along the M1, there are no highways or towns at all, as far as the eye can see. Just vast, open country, consisting of fields, forests, and sky. This land and this highway stretching between Moscow and Smolensk was the same highway that Napoleon used in 1812 to approach and then occupy Moscow, although in that era, Moscow was not the capital of Tsarist Russia. St. Petersburg was. The Mosaisk defensive line, as I have said, sat astride the M1 and consisted of double fortifications of trenches, tank traps, barbed wire, machine gun nests, and backed by artillery, and became increasingly more entrenched and stronger by the day, as quickly as Zhukov could make it. The line then stretched about 115 miles in a concave arc to the north until it petered out in what is today the city of Tver, but was in Soviet times called Kalinin. The Mosaisk line also extended another 150 miles south in another concave arc to the city of Volokolamsk. Today this vast arc of approximately 265 miles is essentially another major Russian highway known as the A-108. So if you can imagine it, we have a very shallow, lazy W facing west, with Mosaisk at the point in the middle prong of the W, Kalinin at the top prong, and Volokolamsk at the bottom, with Moscow to the rear, and Army Group Center arrayed in front of this arc. The corresponding points on the German side would be Bryansk, about 130 miles to the south-southwest of the lower prong of the W, Vyazma, about 80 miles almost due west of the middle prong, and a town called Staritsa, far to the north-northwest of the topmost prong of the W, about 225 miles away as the crow flies. One other interesting terrain phenomenon was that the vast area between Staritsa and the M1 highway leading into Mosaisk and thence to Moscow was untracked wilderness. Staritsa was located only a short distance of 42 miles to the west of Kalinin on what is today Russia's M10 interstate highway. The significance of the fact that a vast area of heavily wooded forested space existed between the M10 highway, which, by the way, would enter Moscow eventually at approximately the 11 o'clock position, and the somewhat parallel M1, was that lateral movement between the German left and center depended essentially on a couple of very low-quality roads that bridged these east-west highways. Those roads are today's A112 and A108, and are single-lane each direction paved blacktop roads. In 1941, they were largely unpaved and axle-deep in sticky, oozing mud, which made any attempt at lateral movement incredibly slow 
or non-existent. A word should be said here about the concentration and dispersal of moving armies, which was as true in 1941 as it was in Napoleon's day, when armies had increased to hundreds of thousands of soldiers, together with cavalry or motorized vehicles, artillery, food, ammunition, and other supplies. On the march, a large corps or army usually had to disperse onto parallel roads, generally moving in the same direction and kept in communication by messengers on horseback in Napoleon's day or by radio in modern times. As danger approached, the army would concentrate into a formidable, dense mass that could only be stopped or defeated by another similarly concentrated force. If straggling columns of soldiers could be isolated and attacked before they concentrated by a larger concentrated force, the results could be disastrous. Screening forces were often sent out in advance of the armies to detect the presence of enemy formations. This was cavalry in the old days. In 1941, it could still be cavalry, but more likely the Luftwaffe, or the Red Air Force, roaming the skies and radioing enemy dispositions back to base. On October 13th, when the German offensive resumed, movement on the bottomless roads resulted in long columns of struggling vehicles, tanks, and soldiers that stretched for dozens of miles. These dispersed columns were the target of strafing attacks from the Soviet Air Force as well as guerrilla or partisan ambushes and attacks in the rear that could overwhelm and slaughter small groups of soldiers. The presence and danger of partisans emerging from the woods along the sides of these roads was always in the minds of the Germans as they struggled forward, increasing the mental exhaustion, tension, and fatigue that were the everyday lot of the Wehrmacht in Russia at this time. The resumption of the campaign began on October 13th, with about 90,000 Russians defending the front before Moscow, being reinforced as quickly as possible, facing the German onslaught. A quarter million Moscow citizens were mustered out to dig trenches and fortifications behind the Russian lines, on the assumption that their defenses on the Mosaic line might be breached. They were correct. The northern and southern outposts of the line at Kalinin and Kaluga were quickly vanquished, even by understrength panzer divisions in a single day. The two ends of the German front then drove further east, with the intent of encircling yet again the remaining Red armies in front of Moscow. A frontal assault on Mosaic itself drove back the Soviet defenders after intense fighting within a week. This time, however, there would be no encirclement. Zhukov pulled back his forces in tighter and tighter concentric circles, with Moscow ever at their back, inflicting severe casualties in daily firefights as they retreated, repositioned, and dug in again. Without achieving any encircling successes, like Bryansk and Vyazma, the German advance between October 13th and October 31st 
simply gained more territory as time ticked away. Soviet casualties were invariably, but not always, significantly higher than the Germans, but quickly replaced, and then some, while German casualties were not. Once again, the tenuous supply lines gave way. Fuel and supplies ran short, and the Raputista choked and slowed the advance to a crawl. On the last day of October, Army Group Center was ordered to a dead stop for two weeks, until November 15th, while reinforcements, supplies, and fuel would catch up and permit a resumption of the attack. In the meantime, on the Soviet side, 100,000 new soldiers reinforced the defenses around Moscow, but there were more on the way. In his book Target Tokyo, The Story of the Sorge Spy Ring, author Gordon Prang details how Richard Sorge, the Soviet spy master in Tokyo, masquerading as a Nazi journalist, discovered from his sources there that the Japanese government had decided not to intervene in the German-Soviet conflict until a number of conditions were met, including the German capture of Moscow. Until Moscow had fallen and several other conditions were met then, Japan would remain uninvolved, Sorge related to his superiors in Moscow, on September 14, 1941. This time, Stalin and the Soviet command believed him, or in any event, took the chance that his information was solid enough to rely on. Japan had suffered a stinging series of defeats by the Soviet armies in the area of Mongolia in the summer of 1939, at the hands of the same Grigory Zhukov that was now in charge of the defense of Moscow. These were the battles of Kalkan Gal. Modern estimates suggest that the Japanese had lost some 45,000 killed and wounded and 162 aircraft in those conflicts, and had a healthy respect for the capability of the Red Army in the East. One of the conditions precedent, Sorge learned in September, was that the Japanese forces would never attack the Soviets until their own field armies in the vicinity were three times larger than the Soviets. In late 1941, fully engaged against the Chinese and contemplating conflict in the Pacific against Britain and the United States, this had not happened and never would. Accordingly, Stalin ordered a substantial part of the forces stationed in the Far East to move and form up as part of a growing Soviet reserve around Moscow. Some 18 divisions, 1,700 tanks, and 1,500 aircraft were brought from Siberia and the Far East in October and November, as Western commentators despaired for Moscow and the chances of the USSR to resist. At the same time, conscripted new troops from all corners of the Soviet Union continued to flow into the area. Although many were raw, untrained recruits from Asian republics like Kazakhstan, the Soviet Far Eastern forces were experienced veterans. By December, the Soviets had accumulated a force of 58 divisions in reserve, unknown to German intelligence, but that was yet to come. Believing that the Soviets were on the brink of collapse, Hitler and the German high command urged Bach 
and Army Group Center on. By mid-November, the weather and ground conditions changed again for the better and the worst. Temperatures dropped to about negative 40 degrees with snow and ice accumulations, which presaged the coldest, harshest winter in 50 years. On the one hand, the hard road surfaces now allowed resumption of rapid movement by tanks, tracked, and wheeled vehicles when they could be started. On the other hand, a large proportion of German vehicles would not start or could only be started by heating the motors and letting them run for hours at a time, consuming yet more fuel. Further, the German soldiers had not been supplied with winter clothing. Casualties due to frostbite, amputations, and death from exposure mounted. Most panzer and infantry units were at half or one-third strength from the combined effects of lack of supplies and losses due to weather or mechanical failures. Nonetheless, the period beginning November 15th until December 5th marked the last gasp of the Wehrmacht. Bloody frontal assaults continued to constrict the ring of defenses around Moscow generally. Fighting was desperate and sustained in horrific conditions, with the Soviets trading lives and space, avoiding encircling panzer attacks for the most part, while the Germans gained space but were unable to ever repeat their successes from the earlier campaigns, exhausting themselves in the process. Nonetheless, the Soviet dictator himself was riddled with anxiety. Reportedly, in October, a short time after Zhukov had assumed command of the defense of the capital, Stalin reportedly telephoned Zhukov and asked, quote, Are you convinced that we can hold Moscow? I ask you this with a pain in my soul. Tell me, honestly, as a communist. Zhukov is said to have replied, we will definitely hold on to Moscow. On November 7, 1941, on the 24th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution, Stalin insisted that the event be observed in Moscow to boost the morale and stiffen the resolve of the people and military forces collecting in and around the capital. The German army was in the middle of its period of resting and refitting, but camped less than 115 miles to the south near Tula and a similar distance due west in Mosaiksk. The traditional military parade began at 8 o'clock in the morning with military bands in full throat as the army arrived. It was a gray and snowy day. Newsreels of the day show snow on the ground with Muscovites bundled in thick, heavy coats and fur caps turned out to watch the spectacle. Cavalry and heavy artillery rumbled through the square, as did trucks packed full of soldiers. Tens of thousands of troops with snow on their uniforms and fur caps began to fill the square until there were more than a hundred thousand of them standing, assembled for all to see, at attention in Red Square, facing the red brick walls of the Kremlin and Lenin's tomb. Their presence, after all the dire losses taken in the months since the war, seemed to embody the propaganda posters, current at that time, that simply said, quote, Our reserves are incalculable. Stalin's appearance atop the tomb electrified the crowds in the square. Showing himself, in person, 
as he did on that day, sent a powerful message to the people of Moscow that, although they had seen government officials leaving the city to carry on the government should the capital fall, he was staying there with them. He approached the microphones at the podium atop the tomb with a serious and calm expression. When he began to speak, there was dead silence in the vast square as his voice reverberated off the walls. If you've never heard Stalin's voice, you'll be surprised at its softness and the almost flat, monotone delivery, very unlike the rasping staccato of Hitler and Goebbels or the baritone richness of Churchill. But Stalin's voice comes out in measured, somber tones with pauses for effect. Little emotion is conveyed, but in this situation it was reassuring. His calm, matter-of-fact, blunt assessment of the country's situation rolled over the crowd below like the inexorable waves of the ocean. He spoke only for ten minutes. He began with a denunciation of the Nazi invasion and a grim description of the conditions of Europe under Nazi rule. He then warmed to the subject of the fate of the Soviet Union, proclaiming that, to the Soviet people, had been granted the sacred task of liberating Europe from the evil of Nazi tyranny that had swept into the heart of their own country and threatened the existence of the Russian people. His speech then cleverly compared the desperation of the early days of the Soviet regime, indeed the first Bolshevik anniversary parade in Red Square, when with much less they had defeated multiple foreign armies and waged a successful civil war. Now, he told them, the Red Army was far more powerful and had far greater resources to win the war, that they would beat back the invader without question and liberate Europe in the bargain. He called forth the names of past Russian greats from the Napoleonic era and past Russian history who had faced and defeated foreign invaders and closed the speech with an exhortation to be worthy of this great hour. The crowd which had listened to him without a word burst into a sustained roar of approval when the speech ended as the dictator looked on impassively from the tomb, ignoring the ovation and even the smiling faces of his entourage crowding around him to congratulate him. His speech, which can still be seen to this day on YouTube, was filmed and shown widely throughout the country at this time. The second phase of the German invasion came to an end around December 5th, 1941, just two days before Pearl Harbor. The furthest penetration of the German army was by a reconnaissance battalion that reached what was then the town of Kimki, capturing its railway station and its bridge over the Moscow-Volga Canal. This was about five miles from the official borderline of Moscow, and only 12 miles from the spot where Stalin had given his speech a month earlier. Kimsky is today located within the second and third concentric ring roads surrounding Moscow that I described earlier, and is a largely residential sector just next to the E-105. At this point, though, much like the alien invaders in H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, the clinking, clanking monsters had spent the last ounce of fuel, blood, and energy and could go no further. And this was the moment that Zukov had been waiting for.
On the same day that the reconnaissance battalion reached Kimsky, Zhukov mobilized his reserves and summoned up his forces, numbering about 1,100,000 men for a counteroffensive. The Germans were stunned. They had been virtually certain that there were no more Soviet reserves left, a situation much like their own, but were now facing an army roughly the size of their own, now gone over to the offensive. Beginning in the north around Kalinin, the surprised and exhausted Wehrmacht forces were quickly overrun and faced with the beginning of an enveloping maneuver themselves. The eruption continued down the central front, resulting in hasty retreat by the Germans in frozen conditions that afforded no respite or warmth. By this time, some 130,000 cases of frostbite had been reported. The rout was on. Local commanders directed their troops to retreat to avoid encirclement, only to be countermanded by Hitler and the high command hundreds of miles to the rear and largely oblivious or indifferent to the conditions on the ground before Moscow. A relentless Soviet series of attacks and German retreats followed between December 7th and January 7th, when Soviet forces began to exhaust their own reserves of fuel and ammunition and came to a halt. By that point, the Wehrmacht had been pushed back between 60 and 150 miles from Moscow and sat shivering in the cold and dark while the Nazi war machine scrambled belatedly to supply them with the cold winter gear with which they had never been given, because in their blind arrogance the regime had convinced itself that it would not be necessary, that the war would be over by the time it became cold enough to need it. Heads rolled, too. Hitler dismissed von Braustich on December 19th. Bach was relieved of command for health reasons, quote-unquote, around Christmas, as were a number of other generals, including Heinz Guderian. So what is the legacy of the Battle of Moscow? Well, this campaign, the Battle of Moscow, was the first major German defeat in the Second World War. The Battle of El Alamein, which would conclude about a year later in Africa, marked the beginning of the end for the Axis power and occupation of North Africa, but that was a peripheral theater of the war with much, much smaller forces involved. The Battle of Stalingrad would be waged in much the same horrific conditions and would conclude a little more than a year later. The conclusion of that battle would see the encirclement and annihilation of an entire German field army, beginning the collapse of the Third Reich. As David Stahl's masterpiece, Operation Typhoon, makes clear in that book, the entire German plan to invade and conquer Soviet Russia in 1941 was a colossal gamble and a mistake, driven by the delusional fantasies of a criminal mind in the form of Adolf Hitler. The popular belief and conception that Germany was militarily more powerful than the USSR is simply a myth. What then allowed the German army to come so close to taking Moscow if not defeating the Soviet Red Army? Careful review of the literature and historiography, especially those of more recent times that have had access to formerly off-limits Soviet archives, as well as the passage of time 
that have allowed authors such as David Stahl to collect thousands of memoirs and recollections from those who wrote about their experiences suggest a number of things. As unrealistic and probably unachievable as the German strategic goals were, the brilliance of German generalship, the initial superior quality of the Wehrmacht, and the advantages that treachery and surprise can bring had much to do with the tactical and operational achievements of the early months of the war. The Red Air Force suffered tremendous losses in the opening days of the war, when vast numbers of aircraft were wiped out on the ground by the Luftwaffe, giving Germany initial complete air superiority. Overwhelming strength in decisive local battles at the outset of Operation Barbarossa allowed quick encirclements and annihilation of borderland forces and then gaping holes in the Soviet defense system through which motorized infantry and tanks poured to complete even larger encirclements and liquidations of Soviet pockets and positions. Finally, Soviet military incompetence in failing to recognize and maneuver out of disastrous defensive positions that could not be held, leading to huge encirclements and losses of untold hundreds of thousands of Soviet soldiers and casualties and prisoners of war, made the Soviet position far worse than it ever needed to be. Had those pockets of Vyazma and Bryansk been evacuated while there was still time, there certainly would have been large losses, but those saved could have been used to bolster the defenses of Moscow. Instead, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of troops were simply lost forever to the Soviet defensive campaigns. In effect, by the time the Battle of Moscow concluded, the Soviets had lost the equivalent of nearly the entire German army that invaded the USSR in June of 1941. They didn't lose them all at once, and of course they exacted heavy German casualties even in defeat. But the reserve potential of the Soviet state to absorb and replace such losses was a fact that the dictator of Germany simply never grasped or admitted. His mind was still focused on the collapse of the czarist Russian army in 1917 under the weight and pressure of the German and Austro-Hungarian armies. Why wouldn't it happen again, just like the last time? Many people compare Hitler's invasion of Russia to Napoleon, but only a quarter century earlier, Germany, with fewer allies and advantages than she seemed to enjoy in the summer of 1941, had succeeded in bringing Russia to her knees. Yet he failed to recognize the changed conditions in the Soviet Union of 1941. The country was far more industrialized than it had been in the last days of the Tsar. Moreover, it was led by a dictator with a will as implacable and strong as his own. There would be no revolution this time to bring down the will to fight. The NKVD and the terror regime Stalin had built over two decades made surrender or defections out of the question. It would be a battle to the death. Even had Moscow been taken, fighting would have continued. In our last episode, I had read you a little bit 
about the philosophy of Sun Tzu and the art of war. Sun Tzu is one of the great military thinkers of all time. And I'm going to close out this episode by sharing with you the thoughts of one of the other great military thinkers, uh, Karl von Clausewitz, who wrote, quote, on war uh, back in the early 19th century. Clausewitz had a number of key principles that he thought were fundamental in understanding war and how wars are fought and won or lost. One of the principles has to do with what he called the country and its terrain and how it could be of decisive importance in a um, protracted war. Here's what he wrote. The country, its physical features and population, is more than just the source of all armed forces proper. It is, in itself, an integral element among the factors at work in war. Though only that part which is the actual theater of operations, or has a notable influence on it. It is possible, no doubt, to use all mobile fighting forces simultaneously, but with fortresses, rivers, mountains, inhabitants, and so forth, that cannot be done, not, in short, with the country as a whole, unless it is so small that the opening action of the war completely engulfs it. In many cases, the proportion of the means of resistance that cannot immediately be brought to bear is much higher than might at first be thought. Even when great strength had been expended on the first decision and the balance has been upset, equilibrium can be restored. And that, I think, is a good summation of what happened here. The German regime, the Nazi regime, of Adolf Hitler simply did not take into account the country that they were now attacking. They, their Nazi ideology of racial superiority and their arrogance did not allow them to conceive that they were getting into a war with a country as powerful and resourceful and driven by ideology and dictatorship as much as their own. One last quote, and this again is from David Stahl's book, um, Operation Typhoon. This is a quote um, by one of the generals involved in the uh, German attack. Uh, his name is uh, Erhard Raus, who was uh, a major general in the 6th Panzer Division, and he wrote about what it was like to be on the Russian front and how decisive it was, the terrain and so forth. This is what he wrote. He who steps for the first time on Russian soil is immediately conscious of the new, the strange, the primitive. The German soldier who crossed into Russian territory felt that he entered a different world, where he was opposed not only by the forces of the enemy, but also by the forces of nature. In 1941, the Wehrmacht did not recognize this force and was not prepared to withstand its effects. Crisis upon crisis and unnecessary suffering were the result. Only the ability of German soldiers to bear up under misfortune prevented disaster. But the German army never recovered 
from the first hard blow.